Recently, I ran across an interesting statement. See if you agree. There are two great moments in a person's life. The moment you were born and the moment you learn why you were born. On the one hand, a birth of a child is a tremendous thrill. A new life comes into the world. There's new potential among us. But the one event that rivals a birthday is the day a person discovers God's will. This is also a landmark, potentially world-changing event. When God calls and you sense him say, this is what you're here to do. Wow, suddenly the creature is aligned with the creator. The pieces of our lives come together. In the wake of this revelation, circumstances that once seemed random now begin to make sense. Our lives take on amazing clarity when we realize why we were born. But as glorious as that day may be, the saddest day is when a man runs from God's will. He knows God's will, his calling on his life, but he chooses to disobey and run the other way. Disobedience upsets the universe. The betrayal of God shocks all of nature. The winds howl, the storms brew when God's children choose to disobey their creator. You know, it's interesting, in the book of Jonah, the storm obeys God, the fish obeys God, Nineveh obeys God, the wind obeys God, even the worm obeys God. The only thing in nature that doesn't obey God is the supposed man of God. And this is what made the day that Jonah bought his ticket to Tarshish such a gloomy day. It's possible the sun was shining and the sky was clear and the seas were calm. But from heaven's perspective, it was a dark and dreary day. For God was not pleased with one of his children. That one-way ticket to a faraway port meant that there was a prophet on the run. And God was in hot pursuit to catch him, arrest him, and redirect him. Well, last week we read the first three verses of the book of Jonah. Let's read them again this morning. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now understand, God notices man's evil. God knows all. He sees all. He takes notice of every sin said or done. God never gets used to our evil, even though he's seen it all before. And oh, he tires of man's failure to learn from his mistakes. Nevertheless, God loves us. God grieves over everyone who believes that his sinful ways will prosper, that the wicked way is the better way. And the wickedness of Nineveh had risen up to God in the updraft of his compassion and mercies. And God chose a man a prophet named Jonah. Jonah was good and godly. He had proven in the past to be a faithful servant. He was called to rescue an entire metropolis. The city of Nineveh at the time had a population of in excess of a million people. And he thought of just one, God's thought of just, God's thought of just one of those Ninevites dying in sin was more than he could bear. That's why he picks a man from his own people, the Jews. 
the nation that knew his name and nature, for centuries had benefited from his grace and mercy. He calls a Jewish prophet named Jonah to leave his borders and to preach to these wicked Assyrians. Jonah's called on a mission for God, a mission of mercy. The problem is that Jonah refuses to go. He disobeys. He says to God, thanks, but no thanks. And in verse 3 we read, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Nineveh was 500 miles east. Tarshish was 2,500 miles west. Jonah heads in the opposite direction from where God calls him. Jonah tries to run from God. As we discussed last week, Jonah hated Ninevites. Their wickedness had not only come up to heaven, it had also come over to Gath Heifer, Jonah's hometown. Jonah knew firsthand of Nineveh's wickedness and its cruelty and its bloodthirstiness. Jonah believed that the world would be a better place if Nineveh was wiped off the map. That's why he couldn't risk it. He just couldn't risk it. What if he did obey God? What if he warned the Ninevites? What if they repented and God forgave them? In Jonah's mind, he was judge and jury of the universe. And he had condemned Nineveh to hell. He wasn't about to let God overturn his verdict. He would rather run to the ends of the earth than to see one of the Ninevites saved. On November the 4th, 1986, Gary Tyndall was being tried for robbery in the California courtroom of Judge Armando Rodriguez. In the midst of the trial, Tyndall asked to use the restroom. He was escorted by two police officers who stood watch outside the door of the laboratory. But inside the restroom, Tyndall shimmied up some plumbing, and he scurried through the crawl space. He was trying to escape. He made it 30 feet before one of the panels broke underneath him, and he fell to the floor. And surprise, surprise, guess where Gary Tyndall ended up? Right back in the courtroom of Judge Rodriguez. Gary Tyndall and Jonah have a lot in common. Both tried to run from the authorities and came crashing down at the judge's feet, right back where they started. The story of Jonah proves you can't outrun God. You see, Jonah was an angry man. He hated the Assyrians, and he was angry with God for not hating them too. Last week I said, anger is one letter short of danger, and it's true. In Jonah's anger, he tried to run from God, and he ended up running into serious trouble. Not only does he make his own life hard, Jonah also causes severe problems for the other people in his life. You see, the story of Jonah teaches us that running from God is not only futile, not only is it hazardous to your health, it can also put you and the people you love in harm's way. So, he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Notice these phrases, down to Joppa, down into the ship. Look ahead in verse 5. Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship. Verse 15, he went down into the sea. Verse 17, he went down into a fish. 
Once Jonah made up his mind to run from God, his life was established on a downward trajectory. From the moment Jonah chose to disobey, his every move was down, down, down. And this is what happens to a person who rejects God's will. Their life begins to go downward. Now, I'm sure Jonah thought his life was on the upswing. He was about to put 3,000 miles between him and where he didn't want to be. He came to Joppa without a reservation. Yet, lo and behold, he happened to find a ship and had the fare. What a coincidence this was. He thought his plan was working swimmingly, flawlessly. Jonah had no idea he was going down. The Almighty would make sure of it. See, we all need to realize that there is no long-term upside when we disobey God. You head down, not up. Jonah thought his plan was working swimmingly. In reality, he is about to take a swim. Verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. One commentator writes, There is no place where you can hide from God. He has at his disposal all the forces of the universe and summons them to do his bidding as he wills. The Hebrew word sent, the Lord sent a great wind, means to hurl like you would hurl a javelin or throw a spear. Implied is that there was a target. The Lord aimed this great wind straight at the -the on-the-run Jonah. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God. Now, the Bible doesn't say it, but based on the sailors' reaction, this great wind seems to have been a supernatural phenomenon. It was as if the wind held a grudge and had decided to attack a specific ship, the specific ship that carried Jonah. Perhaps it was a fairly localized storm, one that maybe spanned only a few miles. It pitched and rocked the getaway ship. The shaking seemed deliberate. It was as if God was outside the ship shouting at it, All right, Jonah, come out with your hands up. This storm scared the sailors. And remember, these were not just weekend boaters, but experienced seamen. These guys were old salts who had weathered many a storm before. But there was something different about this storm. They sensed it. This was the perfect storm. They sensed something unique here. That forces not of this earth were at play in this storm. That's why in their panic and in their fear, they cried out to their pagan gods. A divine hand had gripped this ship and it was shaking it. Like a child trying to pry coins out of his piggy bank. God wanted who or what was inside this boat. That's why they decided to give the sea their payload. We're told the crew threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. See, a lighter ship set higher in the water out of the churning waves. Understand, this was a costly voyage for this captain and his crew. We're not told if the voyage of the voyage's ultimate outcome, but I'm sure it eventually reached Tarshish, and there the merchants were expecting their freight. This captain and his crew, they had a lot of explaining to do. I'm sure they were docked pay for late arrival and for lost cargo. I mean, this voyage ends up a business loss on the 1040 form. 
And I would imagine all of this embarrassed Jonah. He never thought that his disobedience would cost someone else their livelihood, even threaten their life. Jonah assumed the only person his disobedience would hurt was Jonah. But understand, that's never the case. Our disobedience not only hurts us, but the people around us. Reminds me of the pastor who was an avid golfer, but he couldn't control his temper. So rather than be a poor witness on the golf course, he decided to just give up golf for a while. Well, after a couple of years, he felt that he'd made some progress on his besetting sin. He was ready to give it another try. But after just 12 holes, he realized that he had miscalculated. It was the, the 13th hole was a par five, dog leg left, around the lake. Five balls and 12 strokes later, the pastor was steaming. He was angry. He ripped the bag of clubs off the back of his cart, threw them into the lake. That's when he shouted to his partner, finish without me. The failed and frustrated pastor started walking back to the clubhouse. Well, suddenly the cart pulled up alongside the pastor. His partner told him, he said, I can't. You can't what? I can't finish. Well, why? He said, you threw my clubs into the lake. And the moral of the story is clear. When you get angry and sin, you will affect the people around you. Just act to say, ask the sailors on Jonah's boat. When we buck God's will, we think the only person we're hurting is ourselves. But disobey God and your spouse will suffer. Your kids will suffer. Your friends and coworkers will suffer. Even your neighbors will suffer. Your disobedience is a rock thrown into a pool. It creates ripples that move out over the water in ever-expanding circles. You have no idea the extent of their reach. Because you refuse to follow God's will, you might rob future generations of God's blessing. You can't overestimate the ramifications of disobedience. Trust me, sin complicates. Your sin complicates your life and the lives of the people around you. Jonah's sin certainly complicated this voyage for the captain and his crew. Verse 5 tells us, But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. This expression, fast asleep, is translated in other places as deep sleep. Jonah may have been a heavy sleeper, but not this heavy. I mean, this ship he's on is splitting apart at the seams, yet Jonah is sleeping like a baby. You see, before we go further, let me make an observation. I think Jonah was in a state of denial. He had made assumptions that had created in him a false sense of security. First, everything had gone so easy up to this point. Circumstances had just fallen into place. Jonah had thought, oh, surely God isn't upset with me. None of this could have happened if, he, if I wasn't doing the right thing. I mean, me and God are cool. Remember, Jonah didn't have a reservation. A boat just happened to be available. And Tarshish was not a typical destination. Passage from Joppa to Tarshish was like trying to find a nonstop flight from Atlanta to Juneau. They're very rare. And when he purchased this ticket, the exact amount just happened to fall out of his pocket. Listen, amazing, these coincidences. 
Jonah was so convinced he was in the right. He boarded the ship, he found his cabin, and he took a long nap. Jonah was sleeping the sleep of what he thought was an innocent man. Here's an important truth to realize. No amount of favorable circumstances or amazing coincidences can justify an act of disobedience to the revealed will of God. Hope you know that. I don't care if you have a peace in your heart or a peace so strong that you can sleep through a storm. If you sail in opposition to God's will, you are headed for trouble. Hey, I've heard people say crazy stuff, stuff like, well, pastor, you'll just never believe what happened. I was on my knees praying for a new job when a friend I haven't heard from in years called. He offered me the perfect position. I'll just have to work on Sundays and miss church, but I have such a peace about it. I hear this kind of rationale all the time. Has it ever dawned on you that God is not the only person who can manipulate circumstances? Satan can also engineer what appears to be a coincidence. Oh, but pastor, we, we, you'll never believe how we met. It was such a miracle. I was praying from a sign from God if it was okay for me to divorce my spouse. And we just happened to bump into each other at church of all places. Amazing. I have such a peace about this new relationship, pastor. I'm just so happy. It has to be God's will. Well, that is exactly what Jonah concluded until God hurled him into the great wind. It's amazing how some people are quick to exalt an experience or a feeling above the authority of God's word. If the Bible says it's a sin, it doesn't matter if 10,000 circumstances come together to make it happen. It is still a sin. God authored this book. And he will never contradict what he has already stated. God had spoken clearly to Jonah to go to Nineveh. Any other destination would have been an act of disobedience. Hey, we should always remember this. Opportunity doesn't equal permission. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. God is about to shock a disobedient Jonah out of his false sense of security. Well, so the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. What an irony. An idol-worshiping captain wakes up the prophet of the true God and encourages him to pray. I mean, it should be Jonah exhorting the sailors to pray. But when you're on the run from God, your spiritual sense grows dense. See, this pagan captain thinks to pray before Jonah does. In fact, though the prophet Jonah is asked to pray, there's no record he ever does. In fact, by this point, he probably knows it's no use for him to pray. For without him presenting to God a repentant heart, Jonah would just be bouncing his prayers off the roof of his cabin. Well, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. They threw the freight overboard, and since God didn't want the cargo, obviously, he must be after a passenger. And so they roll some dice to detect the fugitive. Now today, when a Christian wants to discern God's will, we don't roll dice. 
We pray and we listen for the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. But in Old Testament times, before the Spirit came to indwell us, God's will was often discerned by casting lots. You draw from a hat. The white ball meant yes, and the black ball meant no. It was that sort of operation. In fact, Proverbs 16, verse 33 reads, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, the writer's saying there's no such thing as luck or chance or happenstance. Every roll of the dice, every bounce of the football is controlled by God's providence. Well, so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Oh, boy, my cover's busted. Suddenly, the rebel is exposed. And then they said to him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? And where did you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? All of a sudden, they have a lot of questions for Jonah. Evidently, though, the ship had been docked in Joppa in Israel. It had a diverse crew. It's sailors from, from all over the world. They all served foreign gods. But Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah isn't timid. He confesses that he is a Hebrew and that he serves the Hebrew God, the God of all the earth, who made the sea and the dry land. Now realize, the idolatrous nations around Israel, they served local deities. See, pagan gods were confined to a certain locale. They were either the gods of the lowland, or the gods of the hills, or the gods of the mountains, or the gods of the sea, or the gods of the deep. The pagan gods had boundaries. A person could travel or climb or sail into and out of their jurisdiction. The false gods of the pagan world were limited. They weren't omnipotent. They could ply their powers only within their own territory, according to the pagans. In fact, these sailors were probably hoping to sail beyond the borders of whatever god was manipulating this storm and into safer waters. But Israel served the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. Yahweh of the Hebrews was no localized sovereign. He was Lord of both sea and land. All of nature is at Yahweh's beck and call. He is the true God. His reach blankets the whole universe. Sadly, people on the run from God tend to adopt the sailor's theology. Even today. They treat God like he's a localized deity. Oh, he's the Lord of Sundays, but not the Lord of Saturday night. He governs what happens at church, but not at work. Oh, he cares about the religious stuff, but not the other stuff, like sex and money and entertainment and all this. That's up to the individual. Secular stuff is our domain. And you see, this kind of thinking leaves a person room to run. He thinks, oh, if I stay out of church, God will leave me alone. Or if I just skip Sundays, God won't find me. I'll just show up at church for weddings and funerals and Easter and Christmas. I'll just lay low the rest of the time and duck God. Don't be foolish. All of life is God's domain. Nothing lies beyond his jurisdiction. Once there was a couple that came to me for marriage counseling, and 
I thought we had a good session until afterwards. The wife turned to me and she said, Pastor Sandy, please don't tell God about our problems. Sorry, but God already had the information. See, like Jonah, you and I serve the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. You know, the elite combat unit of the Navy gets its name Navy SEALs from the elements in which they operate. The word SEALs is an acronym for sea, air, and land. And this is what makes God the ultimate seal. He rules over the sea and the air and every single inch of dry land. In fact, God's GPS tracks you every day of the week, anywhere in the world. And at the time of this on-deck conversation, God was locked in on the prophet Jonah. Well, these sailors, they knew the scope of the Hebrew God. Look at their reaction. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? Now the sailors know who they're up against. They know there's no escaping the hand and will of Yahweh. Jonah might have thought he could outrun God, but these savvy sailors, they know better. To fight this storm was to fight the will of the sovereign God, and that's a losing battle. There's a book titled, Arms Too Short to Box with God. It's good that you remember your arms are too short to box with God. Spar with God and you'll get KO'd. Even the pagan sailors knew that God should be obeyed, not fought. Reminds me of a pro golfer named Tommy Bolt. Tommy was known for his sweet swing and his terrible temper. Once after lipping the cup on six straight putts, Bolt threw his club, shook his fist to heaven and shouted, why don't you come out and fight like a man? Jonah fought against God's will. But at least the sailors knew better. They knew that nobody fights with God and wins. Evidently, Jonah finally spilled the beans. He answered their questions. He told them his story, for the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then verse 11, Then the sailors said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. They now know they're dealing with Jonah's God, so he'll know what to do. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Jonah knew. But it's amazing to me. Jonah is willing to sacrifice his life to save these Gentile sailors. But he's unwilling to travel to Nineveh and preach to the Assyrians. Like all prejudice, no, Jonah's dislike for Assyrians was irrational, completely irrational, illogical. Nevertheless, the men rode hard. There must have been some kind of sailor's code of ethics, you know, a law of the sea that said you never throw a passenger overboard. Again, it's ironic, these pagan sailors, they show more compassion to this one man, Jonah, than Jonah was willing to show to the million-plus population of Nineveh. Well, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. I mean, the harder the sailors row, the stronger the storm becomes. God is angling to catch a Jonah. He's not letting up on his rebel servant. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord, Yahweh, and said, We pray, O Lord, please 
Do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. These sailors were in a life and death quandary. I mean, they're sure that Jonah will drown in the churning waters if they throw him overboard, and they don't want God to hold them accountable for his death. Yet God picked Jonah out of a lineup. Everyone knows God's beef is with Jonah, not them. The sailors don't know what else to do. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. Man overboard. And there was no lifeline. And as soon as his body went over the rail and before it hit the surface of the water, the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The word Lord there is Yahweh. It sounds like these pagan sailors were converted on the spot. They offer a sacrifice to Yahweh, the Hebrew God. And they take a vow. In some way, they pledge their allegiance to Yahweh, the God of Jonah. These guys were so impressed by the storm's obvious intentionality and its abrupt halt that they were certain the God of Jonah was controlling nature and calling the shots that he was the one true God. These sailors became believers without even learning the end of Jonah's story. Even in Jonah's obstinance, he was already using him God was already using him to convert pagan people. Isn't that amazing? You see, the story of Jonah teaches us that God accomplishes his purposes with or without our cooperation. Throughout the book of Jonah, God uses the prophet more in spite of him than because of him. Author Francis Thompson, he penned a classic poem. It's entitled, The Hound of Heaven. It portrays God's relentless pursuit of a man who runs from his will. It applies to Jonah of old and any Jonahs that are here this morning. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and tears. I hid from him from those strong feet that followed, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace and deliberate speed, they beat, and a voice beat more constant than the feet. And it's God's voice that says, All things betray thee who betray me. And again, nothing shelters thee who will not shelter me. And again, nothing will satisfy thee who is not satisfied in me. And in the end, all which I took from thee, I took not for your harm, but just so you would seek it in my arms. I have stored up for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. What a beautiful point. A fugitive from God is actually running from everything he or she really wants. For God has storehouses of blessing awaiting for each of us, but we find them only when we come back home to Him. Sometimes Christians think that their lives would be better off if they were doing something other than what God had called them to do. Sometimes we feel like we're wasting our time. We're throwing our days away on this job or with this family or in this marriage 
or in the pursuit of this unfulfilling task, or a church that has problems. We think we deserve better. We're tempted to believe that God's will is holding us back, that it's depriving us of what could be or even what should be. Oh, if we were free to seek what's out there. Oh, just to launch out and find our own happiness. And so we run. Like Jonah, we run from God and from his will. Here's what the story of Jonah teaches me. No plan for my life is better than the plan God has for me. No matter how taxing or stretching or challenging or sacrificial God's plan might be, it is still the best plan for me. From eternity's perspective, the best use of my short one and only life on earth is the will of God. Romans 12 verse 2 tells us that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. That means if you part ways with what's good and acceptable and perfect, it's downhill from there, brother, sister. You can't improve on good and acceptable and perfect. I love Psalm 84 verse 10. No good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly. You can't miss out on anything that's really good if you stay in God's will. I admit God's will isn't always easy. At times, it's difficult. Throughout the history of the church, God's will has called on his people to make great sacrifices and to resist temptation and to endure all manners of persecution and to love their enemies and to rejoice in trials and to stand tall for the truth and to live in obscurity and poverty and even suffering. God's will can involve years of perseverance amidst difficult circumstances. The cost in the short run can be terribly high, but God's will is worth it in the long run. Trust me, you'll hear zero complaints among the inhabitants of heaven about obeying God. Zero. The prize of paradise, the understanding of it all, will be worth any sacrifice that was required here on earth. There's only one task more difficult than following God's will. And that's living your life running from God's will. That path leads from God. It's paved with misery. Just ask Jonah. God loved Jonah too much to let the prophet succeed without him. And he loves you too much to allow you to prosper in your disobedience. As hard as it is to obey God's calling on our lives, the one thing harder is to disobey. God makes sure of it. Recall the quote that I read earlier. God has at his disposal all the forces of the universe and summons them to do his bidding as he wills. In other words, God has plenty of wrenches he can use to toss in the gears of our runaway lives and upset our plans. God has innumerable ways of grinding our lives to a halt. A wind, a storm, frustrated sailors, a fish, a financial setback, a sickness, a layoff, a rebellious child, an ornery neighbor. I mean, storms come in many forms. 
The story of Jonah teaches us that the Almighty God is angling for us. And he will use whatever it takes to catch us and to wake up the sleeper and to steer us back into his will. If you're on the run from God, friend, it's time to stop. Stop making the people around you miserable. Stop making yourself miserable. Stop running before someone points at you and shouts, man, overboard. Turn your boat around before it's too late. Head back in the direction of God's will. Always remember this. You are either running with God or you're running from God. Which is it for you?